Hey coach, when you think about the beginning of the school year, how do you feel? Unsure? Doubtful? Overwhelmed? You're not alone. Since the dawn of time, instructional coaches have been left to figure things out on their own, resulting in frustration and failure. But it doesn't have to be that way. Instead, let's start the year with a roadmap that tells you exactly what to do each day for the exponentially important first 20 days of school. The things you do that first month of school will make or break your coaching year. Let's do the right things together. Head to buzzingwithmissb.com slash startup to join the waitlist for my instructional coaching startup course. The course opens in mid-July, but if you join the waitlist, you'll receive a coupon code for 15% off when the course opens up. I can't wait to help you start strong and coach better this year. My favorite summer coaching event is just around the corner and I want to see you there. This is the fifth year of the Simply Coaching Summit, the first virtual conference for coaches, and I've been a part of it every single year. This online conference for instructional coaches is on July 10th, 11th, and 12th, and it'll give you everything you need to change your school one step at a time. The summit is three days of keynotes, live workshops, and pre-recorded sessions. I'm giving a workshop about what coaches should do the first couple of weeks of school, focusing on building your coaching menu from start to finish. But there is so much more to this summit that you have to see for yourself. Head to buzzingwithmissb.com slash summit to save your spot. The best part is that you have six months to watch the videos. So if your summer plans didn't include some cozy PD at home on the couch, you can watch them when you're back at school. Check out buzzingwithmissb.com slash summit and I will see you soon. You're listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast, where we believe that every teacher deserves a coach, and every coach does too. I'm Chrissy Beltran, an instructional coach, resource creator, and coffee enthusiast, and I'm your host. Stay tuned for practical tips and honest coaching talk that will help you coach with confidence. Hey coach, this summer we're focusing on how you can establish a strong coaching program from the get-go this school year. Last week, we talked about how to adjust into this new role and being out of the classroom. This week, we're looking at defining roles for our coaching work. We often talk about our coaching role, which is essential, but what I love about our guest today is she looks deeper at the different roles coaches serve within a student-focused coaching model, and this results in better communication and collaboration. So I'm really excited to welcome my guest today, Dr. Jan Hasbrook. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Hasbrook. I'm happy to be here. We're excited oh. to have you here too. Oh, go ahead. What were you going to <laughs> I'm say? I'm just going to say, always happy to talk about coaching. <laughs> it's been something I've been uh, thinking about for a very long time. That's great. Yeah, we love to talk about coaching here too. I, talking shop is one of my favorite things, and most people don't believe that that is true. <laughs> <laughs> love to talk about shop. So could you introduce yourself to our listeners today and talk a little bit about who you are, how you ended up here, and what kind of work you focus on right now? Yeah, for sure. Um, well, as I said, I've been doing coaching for a very long time. My career has been uh, in the multiple decades now. I actually started off uh, originally um, as a, a reading specialist. Uh, I did that for about 15 years, uh, mostly at the elementary level, and really enjoyed that work tremendously. Um, but Toward the end of that time, uh, I had the opportunity to um, take on a new role that was uh, very minimally described to me uh, by my boss at the time. He was in charge of all the reading specialists um, in Springfield, Oregon, actually the district where, where I worked at the time. Um, and he had this idea, he told me that he thought it would be a good idea if there was somebody available to work with all the different reading specialists in the various schools and help them, you know, help them. This is the way <laughs> he described it. Uh, and then he asked if I would be willing to consider taking on that role. And um, so that's what led me to a big shift in my work, not just in the district, um, because I figured out quickly that this job that he was asking me to do um, 
was probably something like consultation or coaching. We were using the term consultation more back in those days. Um, but uh, I also realized right away that it was very different from being a reading specialist, and um, I didn't have very much confidence or even a vision um, uh, of what I was supposed to do. So that ended, uh, that pushed me to make some connections with folks at the University of Oregon who were actually doing some training programs in what they called school-based consultation professionals working with other professionals in school-based settings to help them, uh, you know, achieve you know, maximum achievement for their students, that kind of thing. And uh, so Jerry Tyndall actually was the professor who had just started that program. And so I started taking classes from him and found them to be very helpful. Um, and Jerry and I really liked working together. And he suggested I just stay on and get a doctoral degree. So I studied with Jerry. Um, that shifted me. I continued my interest in coaching and developing processes for coaching and doing research and coaching. But my original interest in reading never went away. So those two things became the focus of my work as a professor. Uh, both at the University of Oregon and then at Texas A&M University. And I think because of my own personal interest in what's actually happening in classrooms, I always stayed connected with research and projects and consulting and opportunities to work with people in the field. So um, in fact, I'm no longer affiliated with a university. That was a, a wonderful experience, but I felt too isolated in the ivory tower. So I just work professionally, independently now and work with um, schools, both again in that field of reading um, and mostly in reading, I work with the foundational skills, kids who struggle with learning to read, dyslexia, that kind of thing, um, as well as coaching. I love that. I love that that you've been reflective throughout your journey and you and you've decided it's important to, you know, make sure that you're really connected to what's going on in schools because that's how we can be the most supportive of what's happening in schools. Yeah. It's, it, yes, it's it's not theoretical for me. <laughs> I spent mm -hmm. too many years looking into the eyes of children who were struggling learning to read and write um, and being do, too disconnected with that process, especially I would say right now, because um, in the area of reading, we've had uh, pretty much, I mean, it's an explosion mm -hmm. of good evidence that has actually, in most cases, validated what we've been doing for 50 years. It's not like it's a whole new body of evidence, but it's increasing evidence about best practices in reading. And so I'm very excited to do work um, through coaching and other models to get that information in the hands of teachers so we can help as many kids as possible. Well, your focus on kids is clear in everything that you do and all of the work that you've put out in the world. Everything that I've read from you is excellent. And it's very focused on students, Yes, which I, I like the focus on the student focus coaching model. I think yeah. that's so important. Can you share a little bit about that model and talk about how it differs from other coaching models? Yeah. And that model that we, we're now calling student-focused coaching evolved over, um, I think it's about 30 years now. And it really started way back at the University of Oregon with my work with Jerry Tyndall, who was, as I said, doing courses. We had, we had a, a, a beginning database, a beginning research evidence about the consultation process where somebody was often a special educator or a school psychologist. Um, that was the focus of a lot of the research. What were the optimal processes for those people to work with their colleagues to help students? So I was learning and doing research from the very beginning. Um, Jerry and I wrote some grants and um, to do some research and training. And we had to label our model back then. And we originally called it responsive consultation, um, looking at what the research said. And my experience in the field was that uh, 
this process, whatever it is, with one colleague working with another colleague, it has to be flexible. It has to be responsive to the situation because in the real world, every situation is very different. So we worked on that model for a while. Um, and then I moved on to the University of, uh, to Texas A&M University and ended up working with uh, a woman there, Jan Hughes, in school psychology. And she had been doing some similar work and she was very interested in what we did. So we kind of melded what we'd done together and started calling the process responsive systems consultation, which worked really well in her field of school psychology and a lot of the work that special educators do. But then I also started working um, with, uh, uh, originally a, a master's student who stayed on for her doctoral work, Carolyn Denton. And she and I wanted to take that basic model and try it in a coaching process. Um, um, and we did that and found that this responsive model worked really well in coaching. And we named that model student-focused coaching. And that was back in the, that would have been in the early 90s when we started referring to our process that way, which is, um, I mean, I think ultimately all coaching models have a focus on students, but we wanted to emphasize that, that to de-emphasize the power structure between the coach and the, and the coachee or the coach and the teacher, um, that the research that I've conducted, the research that many others have conducted really make it clear that that process is most effective when there is a reciprocity, when there's an even power sharing that if the teacher, if what the teacher needs from the coach is, is real direction, that goes back to that responsive model. The coach should be ready to do that. If that's what you need from me, you want me to show you how to do it, to model it, to guide you through it, I should be ready to do that. And if you're asking me to model a optimal lesson in uh, advanced organic chemistry or something, um, I may need, I'm going to work with you, the content expert, because I don't know anything, honestly, anything about <laughs> organic chemistry. Uh, but I, I know about learning. I know about optimal classroom organizations. I know about in student engagement, those kinds of things. We can work on that the coach and the teacher together. So if that's what the teacher wants, some teachers may want what they want from you as the coach is just a resource. You know, I'm kind of out of ideas or um, I've been hearing about, um, you know, in the reading field, I've been hearing about phoneme awareness, phonemic awareness. What, how should I, as a fourth grade teacher, should I be paying attention to that? Um, or I think some of my kids have dyslexia. What, what should I be doing about that? So the, the role can be very different, but at the end of the day, making sure that the purpose doesn't get lost. Two professionals over here talking to each other about dyslexia. What about the kids? <laughs> you know, let's make sure uh, that what we're doing is very focused on outcomes that will affect students in a positive way. So our I would say the essence of our model when I look at some of the more popular models that are out there, the essence of the difference between ours is that we have never used what is really popular in a lot of coaching models. We have never used the coaching cycle as a centerpiece of our work. It's available to our coaches. If you want to observe and give feedback um, to a teacher, of course you can, if that's what they want, if that's what you both agree is gonna be the best thing to help them help kids, we will do that. But we, based on our research and experience, um, highlight a problem solving model rather than a coaching cycle. And again, we have a fully responsive model. If you mm -hmm. want to be observed and we'll give you feedback, yes, we can do that. But we prefer, based on the evidence that we have that it's most effective, we prefer to take a collaborative problem solving process. You and I sit down together and you tell me, teacher, what your concerns are. And I will listen to what your concerns are. I, I have to treat that with a bit of skepticism at the beginning because classrooms are complex and busy places. And you may think the problem that you have is this one kid in your seventh period class or whatever. Um, 
And it may be, um, it may be a behavior issue that we can help that student get their behaviors under control, but it may be a bigger issue than that too. So we, we try to identify, we work together from the beginning to uh, identify what the real issue is through data, observation, assessments, if that's appropriate. We plan together to figure out what are we going to do about this concern. The teacher then is going to implement the plan, whatever we come up with, with, with support from me as the coach. That's where really coaching comes in in, in many ways, the modeling, the, the feedback, the getting resources, whatever it is. Um, and then we eventually, we've set some goals for this process and eventually we meet to see if the goals have been met. So that is the centerpiece of the student-focused coaching model is collaborative problem solving. We spend a lot of time with our, um, when we train people in the model, what that, why, why that is the way they should approach things, why, what are the processes, how to do it as quickly, efficiently as possible, um, and when to not do that, when to do something else because that would be more appropriate. That's so wonderful because it is, you're saying it's responsive. It's differentiating, you know, based on teacher need and the way exactly. to learn and, and where they are in their career and in their learning curve and all these different things that they have to be really good at. And so that's, I just love the way that you've defined that. It's, um, it's, it's not, it's, it's not saying everybody's going to go through this process and I'm going to put you on a schedule and rotate through each teacher. Each teacher is going to get two coaching cycles every nine weeks. And sometimes I get questions like that. Well, how many coaching cycles should I be doing every, you know, every school year? How often should I be? And I'm like, it really depends on your teachers and their need. And, and so much is, is, I mean, it's going to look different from grade level to grade level, even let alone from school to school. And so we don't, it, it's, you can't quantify what your coaching program is going to look like. We need to see who we have that we're working with and start from what they need. Just like in your classroom, we have to look at our kids and say, what do our kids need? And we may have to make big adjustments and do things in ways we have never done them before. Exactly right. I'm thinking right now of a colleague of mine who's a second grade teacher. She's in her, I think, 32nd year of teaching something amazing like that. Um, and I've had the privilege of being in her classroom many times. She is, I'm sure there are many, many good second grade teachers out there, but Julie Bedell has got to be the best one ever. <laughs> she's just unbelievable. And yet this year, she said she's having a really rough year. She's got a child with pretty severe emotional behavioral challenges, which affects the whole classroom. Um, and she said it's one of the toughest years she's ever had. And this is coming from a teacher with unbelievable experience, a teacher who almost well, at least weekly, has people visiting our classroom to see excellence in in action. Um, so if we've said to Julie, you know, if we as coaches said to Julie, well, you know, Julie's fine. She doesn't need any coaching. Um, exactly. We differentiate because every, as you say, every year is, is different. Um, your kids are different. And if the focus is on the students and what help could we provide to Julie um, if she asked for assistance, what would that look like for her this year? Um, this, you know, the first part of the year, the second part of the year, it's all differentiated. That's the word, Chrissy, where we have to differentiate this along with keeping our focus on the students. So we're not just doing this adult stuff out here that feels really good and satisfying, um, uh, maybe intellectually engaging or whatever. Um, we should all be there for the students. We need to keep that as our focus. Yes, every teacher deserves a coach. And we can't be the coach for every teacher if there's a stigma around coaching that it's about whenever you're not being successful. <laughs> yeah, very, very true. We work a lot with that too. That's uh, another really key aspect, not just of the student-focused coaching model, but of all models of coaching is to 
work really hard to have clarity about, about what the role is mm -hmm. um, from the coach needs to have that as much as possible. The administrator, the principal, whoever works directly with the coach needs to have clarity around what is the purpose because there's limited time. There's always limited time. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's always mm -hmm. limited time. Uh, and so clarity around what is the purpose? How, how am I supposed to be spending my time? And the flex of, and making sure that is that the teachers understand that as well. So all participants in the process, but that also has to have a certain level of flexibility um, that the model can't become uh, or the role of the coach can't become rigid. It should be negotiated over time as things change, as we have, oh, I don't know, a pandemic, you know, <laughs> right. or a particularly challenging student or a new curriculum. A friend of mine mm -hmm. uh, who is a coach in California is on year three, I believe, of a curriculum um, adoption. And it, you know, set them back in many ways to step one. And it's just been dealing with this new curriculum has really been the focus of her work. Um, she's really anxious to move on to, you know, other things, but that kind of flexibility and just what the role is going to be this year for the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. It, we do need to redefine that role frequently because every year does look different and and our admin all have different ideas of what we do. And whenever we don't have that clearly defined role with admin, then we are usually we're like fighting an uphill battle because we think we're doing what we're meant to do and we're not doing what admin has in mind. And then we're just we're it's like a tug of war. Like this is what my job is. No, this is what your job is. Yeah. And so it's very stressful. And so many schools are going through what you described with a new curriculum, um, you know, rolling out new programs or pulling back on an old program and kind of creating their own over time, which is another a completely different process and takes a lot of time to write that curriculum from scratch. And so we really have to define what is our place in that. So in, in those years, I'm sure that you serve more of a consulting professional development role um, rather than maybe the, the coaching work that we had been used to doing in the past. Yeah. So we have to kind yeah. of change that. Definitely, we should. I, I'm glad you brought up role also. I did want to know a little bit about many of our coaches are pulled into sort of an administrative role. They get, um, they start to feel more like an assistant principal than a coach. And so could you share a little bit about the differences between a coaching role and a supervisory role? Because I know that's one of the things that you've you've written about. Yes, we did highlight that because I think it's universally true in all coaching implementations for a variety of very understandable reasons. But one being that most principals don't have an in their training, in their preparation, nobody really explained the role of the coach to them. Um, and if they did, it might not have been well-defined, mm -hmm. et cetera. So what do principals know? They know their job really well, and they know that they don't have enough time mm -hmm. um, or days in the week or hands to get it all done. So, oh, look, here's a person mm -hmm. who's smart and capable and resourceful and uh, lovely to work with and not with kids all the time. Hmm, what could I ask them to do that will be good for the school and helpful to me? And uh yeah, lo and behold, pretty soon, that is the role. The coach, still called a coach, is uh, an assistant administrator. So there's no real fix to that except information and an agreement that there is a role for coaching and it should be well-defined. Um, we try to do that in our book of talking about you know our definition, but we, we definitely recommend um, uh, to the coach and their admin to have conversations and we actually structure conversations uh, about what that what that should be what should the goal be what should the roles be and having those conversations initially uh, before the role is even introduced to the school or uh, in the reality of many places the coaching has been introduced to the school, but now they're thinking, oh, this isn't really going very well. So how do we do a redo um, and how to take on that process? But it starts with conversations about um, uh, choose, ideally choosing a model of coaching because there are many different sort of vague ways of doing it. Let's, let's pick a model. Let's do this. Let's talk about 
uh, what are the essences of this model. Let's talk about the realities of who our school is. What are, what are the needs of the children in this school? What are the needs of the teachers in this school? What are the goals of the administrator in, in this building? Using those kinds of things, in some cases, actual data, we can survey the teachers. What is it that you would like in terms of your own professional growth and development? Let's look at the data from the kids. What, where are our kids thriving and where are they struggling? Um, and let's have conversations about how my time as a coach, which is never enough, always limited, how do I focus my time to address these concerns that we have identified? And then continuing to have those conversations. We recommend at least at minimum three times a year that you have conversations specifically around your role. Here's how I'm spending my time. Let's look at student outcomes. Let's, let's maybe survey teachers again um, that continuing to bravely and purposefully have those conversations so that we do draw a line. The, big, the biggest line, you asked what are the differences? The biggest difference really is um, power and authority. Mm -hmm. uh, we talk about that a lot in our trainings and in our book. I often joke about coaches should have a t-shirt that says, I have no power and no authority. <laughs> right. um, and that statement kind of uh, shocks and scares some some. Uh, coaches sometimes and principals, you know, what do you what do you mean by that? I'm, you know, I think it's a fact, so I don't think it should be scary or or shocking. In fact, I think it should be a relief to coaches to think that they don't have power or authority to make teachers do anything. They are not the administrator. They are teachers in a in a supportive role for teachers. They should align themselves more with their teacher colleagues than their administrator. And it does come down to power and authority. Administrators have, through their training and credentialing and their job description and often law, mm -hmm. they have the duty, not just the ability, but they have the duty, the responsibility to uh, evaluate the teachers. That's their job. If a teacher steps way out of line, is not teaching or doing something uh, that is uh, destructive to children, you know, we, we think about, um, you know, neglect or abuse. Um, certainly a principal has the, the responsibility to take care of that. And of course, most things in schools don't, don't, get that extreme. But the job of the principal really is to help each teacher be optimally successful, which is similar to a coach. But at the end of the day, the principal gets to, has to, has the responsibility and legal authority to say, you're doing fine or you're not. The coach should not be involved with that evaluation decision in any way in any way. It is really problematic when a coach and a principal have a conversation about the quality of a teacher. You know, I'm really worried about, you know, Jessica in grade five. What do you think about? Yeah, I've been in her classroom and that's a concern. That is crossing a line that this fifth grade Jessica teacher, she has some legal protection. Um, it's personnel law that's a, that is that is tells uh, all of us when we're in a in a job that only certain people have the power to make evaluative decisions about us, and that the information around that is confidential, legally confidential, unless. Jessica, this fifth grade teacher says, it's okay for you guys to talk about me. I, I, you know, I'd like more feedback. I would like the principal and the coach to observe me together. And the three of us can talk about it with permission. Then we can do these conversations without overt permission. I mean, if things are really tense and, and high stakes, we should probably get that permission in writing, but coaches can and have been and will be sued <laughs> for stepping over or even being perceived to step over into that realm of evaluation. Um, we need to work really hard. And that's part of role definition. Um, I will watch a teacher. I will give that teacher feedback. But unless the teacher gives me feed permission to share that 
with the principal, I, I really cannot. That is a confidential process. Unless that teacher steps out of bounds into neglect or abuse of a child. And then as mandatory reporters, we have to do something about that. But that line can be very gray. Mm -hmm. You know, I often tell the story because it's so clear in the 30 some years I've been involved in this. I was in a classroom and I watched a teacher pull a child's hair right in front of me. Um, and so that was clear, absolutely mm -hmm. clear. She knew it. I knew it, you know no confidentiality there. Mm -hmm. But there's so many other in 30 years I've seen, as every coach will see, things that make them uncomfortable, things that they think, ooh, that shouldn't have happened. Now what do I do about that? Those are difficult, challenging, but important conversations because if you coach long enough, you're going to be in that situation. And what what do you do what do you do with that? How do you handle that? There's another thing to put on your list of things to have a conversation with about with your principal. Mm -hmm. um, how do we how do we talk about teachers? Um, how and when um, and why and why not do that? Yeah, it's complicated. I, it's really yeah, complicated. It is. You, know, you bring up a really good point because there are things that you see that you think it's not good. It's really an issue, you know, and I wouldn't want that happening with my kid. Um, and that's whenever, you know, there's a real problem. Um, and it is, it's difficult. And sometimes you can address that directly with the teacher. And sometimes it might be an issue that you have to take up somewhere else. Right. Mm -hmm. So how can we, if we've gone through this process with our admin, and I'm really glad you brought up, um, power because as a coach, you know, I was often, you know, put in those positions of felt more assistant principally sometimes, and that was, like you said, just a staffing issue, really. Too many teachers, too many kids, not enough adults. And um, and so there were, I can remember one time my principal saying, well, I, I try to empower my, my leadership team. And I said, well, I am empowered to make the decisions that I need to make and all these things, but I am not in a position of power. And I think that was a bit surprising to her because I think she kind of felt that I could serve as proxy and okay. say, well, you have to do that. You, I, I asked you to turn this in, so you have to turn it in. That is required. But I, that was not my position. It was if there was anything that anybody that had to lay down the law, it was not me. There are things that we can do to like team accountability and things like that. Yes. We do CLCs, but we're not like a, an administrator, powerful type position. No, and I, it's in my experience, the more that the principal is clear about that and the more that they build a very overt firewall between that, talking about mm -hmm. issues around confidentiality, talking about the difference between their role and the coaching role. When principals get it um, and they commit to that and they make it clear to all the other teachers, things just coaching is more successful. I've always seen it be more successful. It's when it's sort of wishy-washy and, and not clear and the, the teachers aren't sure. What are you doing here? Are you really a spy for the principal? Yeah. Are you sharing things behind my back? When it's not clear, I mean, if I felt that somebody was in my classroom and I wasn't sure of their role, I would sure work real hard to protect myself and my kids. I wouldn't share with them. I would not want them there. I would minimize our contact. Um, so it's all part of making coaching as effective as possible for that clarity. So once we've established this, how can we get this out to teachers and our faculty? You know, how do we share this and, and make sure that everybody is on the same page? Mm. Well, uh, put, putting things in writing really helps. Mm -hmm. As somebody who does a lot of writing, I know that uh, my thoughts get uh, much clearer and clearer over time because the first draft is never the final draft. So I'll write something down and maybe a, uh, this is these are the kinds of things that Jan is going to do in her coaching role. And the principal looks at it. We look at it multiple times. Maybe there's a, um, a leadership team that can look at it. And as soon as we have as much clarity as we can right now, because it will change, what we suggest is optimal because of the power and authority issues is that the principal shares that rather than me going from teacher to teacher or even talking about my role in a faculty meeting, if the principal does it and says, we have a coach, this is what she's going to do. 
Uh, if you have any concerns about this at any time, come to me um, because this role is important and these are the things that Jan is going to do and these are the things that she's not going to do. Um, uh, and we will, you know, revisit this at any time, but we're here for the kids. She's going to help you be the best teachers you can for our students. Um, so uh, ideally, it's in writing. It's that clear that we can write it down. It comes from the principal with real authority. Um, this is what we're going to do. Uh, teachers hear it. They have copies of it if it's in writing. And we are all very willing to revisit it. Let's revisit it at the end of the trimester or the middle of the year or whatever logical time. Let's read through this again. Is this actually, are we doing it? Is this what's happening? Or are we doing something? You know, we wrote it down, but we're not. We're not doing it. Um, I think that kind of work, and we don't need to do that. I always find it funny in school settings where you know schools are evolving. Certainly, schools are not organized exactly the same way they were when I was in kindergarten. You know, so long ago. But there is some. But they haven't changed radically. The role of the principal is pretty much the role of the principal when you know. Mrs. Moore was my principal when I was in kindergarten. It's mm -hmm. it, we don't have to visit it and talk about it and 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 write it down and visit it again in the middle of the year. We really don't. Or you know the fifth grade teacher or the seventh grade math teacher. We kind of know what that role is. We don't have to have these big discussions. But the role of the coach is new, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and it's been done poorly and ineffectively and incorrectly in a lot of places. So we've got we got a lot of unclarity that's not even a word we've got a lot of <laughs> fuzziness uh, fuzziness uh, and issues to work through and mm -hmm. we're going to and because the role should be flexible it's going to vary from school to school and district to district so um yeah that feels like a very different task than we've been asked to do in schools uh because we don't have to we don't have to have these long discussions about mm -hmm. what is a third grade teacher supposed right. to do like yeah we kind of know but with the coach we don't know. So let's talk about it. That's such a good point. So as people are trying to define and establish these roles, what are some big mistakes that are most commonly made? Uh, I think allowing things to remain fuzzy is the biggest mm -hmm. one because you can predict what's going to, well, one of the things you can predict is going to happen is that the role is going to change into an assistant administrator. <laughs> Fuzzily defined coaching role, that's what happens every mm -hmm. time. The other is that coaches, because coaches, every coach I've met is a human being, that we as human beings have uh, fears and anxiety um, and strengths. And what a coach will then do if left in a fuzzily defined role they will just do the things that they like to do and the things that they're already good at, which may be optimal for the situation, but they may not. There are coaches who are much more comfortable being in an office, analyzing data and making charts and reports, um, which may be an important thing for that school. But what about the face-to-face? -face. What about being in a classroom? And there are coaches who that's what they want to do. They just like interacting with the teachers and they spend lots of time, but it's sort of ill-defined. So they're just sort of hanging out in classrooms. But um, so there's all kinds of ways that things can go wrong, but they're often driven by the needs of the system, ill-defined role. Um, and, and then what happens, I mean, I've just seen this so many times is that, yeah, the coaching role evolves to what that individual coach is comfortable with and what they like to do mm -hmm. uh, and for better yeah. or worse. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They end up taking um, a lot of small groups. I do see a lot of coaches uh, use this kind yes. of interventionist. Exactly. And that's, that's maybe your comfort zone if you're newly out of the classroom. Exactly. Like, oh, I miss the kids, you know. Oh yes, I would have loved to have done that. Oh, mm -hmm. I'll just take this group. And mm -hmm. do you have any groups you need me to take? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that would have been my that would have been my comfort zone. Going in and watching a teacher teach and giving them feedback. Oh no no no, <laughs> uh, I did I did not want to do that. And uh, until I got much more comfortable and mm -hmm. realized that it wasn't, I wasn't watching them to give them feedback in the same way a principal watches to give feedback. Um, and I don't, and it also, as our 
the clarity around our model evolved. I don't even do that. I don't watch and give you feedback unless you ask me to. Uh, it is not something in our model that we impose on a teacher. Okay, mm -hmm. coaching cycle time. Um, what dog and pony show are you going to put on for me? Because I'm here to watch you teach. We, do, we don't do that. Yeah, you make it, you make all the different tools in your toolbox available to your teacher. Available, that's from. right. Yeah, I like that a lot. That's kind of, I have a coaching menu that I use and it has a bunch mm -hmm. of different kinds of things that I can do with a teacher, like co-planning, you know, learning about a new topic, being a sounding board sometimes is all that they need. But then it also does include those traditional coaching cycle modes of modeling, co-teaching um, and observing. Yeah, Absolutely. It's a powerful, it's a powerful process and we mm -hmm. need to have that available on a menu. That's exactly, mm -hmm. we use that terminology as well. Oh, great. Okay. So what are some of the different roles that coaches can serve within this model? Because you've mentioned some teachers need a little more direction and I totally agree with that. I feel like sometimes coaches are taught to only ask the question mm. and then sometimes teachers are like, if I knew the answer to that question, I would be doing it already. <laughs> You know, <laughs> yeah, so right. sometimes they need the support in a different way. So what kinds yeah. of roles do, do you, you serve within your model? Well, we have defined three. So this, again, this model is decades old and very, uh, has been created both from actual research as well as field-based implementation. So the three roles that we define for our student-focused coaches, uh, the first one is the role of facilitator. The second one is collaborative problem solver. And the third one we've labeled as teacher learner. Um, so the facilitator role is one that really does distinguish our model from others. Um, I have not seen in other uh, formally described models of coaching uh, acknowledgement of the important role of of that, that coaches can play. When we're working with teachers like the one I mentioned, Julie Bedell, this superb mm -hmm. veteran teacher who could teach almost all coaches a whole lot about good teaching. The fact that if she's already doing good work, shouldn't the role of the coach be to facilitate that good work? It, it We put that up front and highlight it because it helps us acknowledge to ourselves and to our colleagues, I'm not here to fix bad teachers. This is not my role. Uh, I'm here, first of all, for students. Um, and I will work, I can only do that through you, through my partnership with you. But part of the time will be to facilitate the good work you're already doing. How can I do that? How can I find some materials you need? Or maybe make some phone calls that you don't have time to make or, or set up meetings or some little things. And we don't want coaches to spend all their time doing that because that can become just a time suck of going around and making people feel good and facilitating their work. But it's an acknowledgement that that it's valuable for hardworking, skillful teachers who work in isolation a lot of the time to facilitate that work. We also put within that category all the things we do to um, to get relationships started because I'm not going to be a very effective coach if I don't have some kind of professional relationship, not, not friendship, but a professional relationship mm -hmm. with you. So how do we get that started? Um, that's the facilitator role. The collaborative problem solver role is where we do hope actually that our coaches spend most of their time. This is engaged in sometimes very lengthy and multifaceted process with a teacher where I start or the teacher, it may start with the teacher contacting me to say, I'm really struggling with my, uh, uh, you know, I'm a seventh grade math teacher. My third period class is really, really struggling. I, I can't seem to, you know, I, the, the kids are, have behavior issues. I just have need help with that. So that's, they approach us with that problem. Then we go through that systematic 
process of collaborative planning, uh, collaborative problem solving, where we actually talk about what their concerns are. We gather some data. I might come in and do an observation. Um, we, you know, look at the curriculum, whatever would be relevant. We come up with a plan. We implement the plan, the teacher implements the plan, I support that and we evaluate whether it's working. So most of our coaches start all their work that way. Mm -hmm. If in the plan implementation, one of the things that the teacher wants us to do is, um, you know, model and observe lessons and give feedback, we will do that. But it's all within that context of a structured, systematic problem solving process because that's what the research on coaching says is the most effective. But the third role that we have um, is the one that we call teacher learner. And that's where we put all the activities that are more the uh, typical um, job of the coach. Uh, that would be, I'm going to do, uh, the teachers have said they're, they're all struggling with um, uh, reading fluency. I'm going to do uh, a series of after school workshops. We're going to do a book study. Um, uh, we may do some classroom visits around reading fluency. So I'm going to do some PD uh, around maybe one time, maybe we're going to focus this whole semester on fluency, whatever that would be. That is also if a teacher says just I want you to come in and watch me teach this lesson and give me some feedback. That's under the teacher learner role. Um, this is where if, a, not if, but when a coach needs to deepen their own professional knowledge by taking time to read an article or attending a webinar or going to a conference, that mm -hmm. would, they put their learner hat on so they can be a teacher, a provider of direct and of, of, professional development um, or and they should be a learner even when they're doing that they should be learning from their colleagues um, so that's why we call that third role the teacher learner role it's not like I am the person who knows all mm -hmm. these things just ask me I will come and show you no coach don't worry you don't need to be that person you but you need to be willing um, uh, you need to whether you're willing or not share your professional expertise in a helpful way to teachers but during that process, you're also a learner. So those are the three roles. And then of course, there's the other, <laughs> the other stuff, um, the uncategorized stuff of mm -hmm. the coaches have to do like, Ooh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, um, the person that comes in and observes the class or watches the lunchroom is not here today. Would you yeah. go do that? Yeah, of course I will. Would you monitor, you know, go out and supervise the bus loading because uh, the principals usually does that and she's busy right now. Of course I will do that. So that's that other stuff. We do have a, a, a time tracking system that we use to so that we can track how our coaches are spending their time. And it becomes very interesting to see if the other area is eating up all their time. That's a concern. Yeah. I like that. There was a recent episode on this podcast about tracking your coaching work and kind of color coding it into different categories. And those would be great categories to use to see where your time is going. And if you're spending a lot of time on other tasks, or if you're spending all your time on teacher learner stuff, but really not, you know, working with individual teachers as that, as that collaborative problem solver. So that's, that's a really great way to approach that. Mm -hmm. We have found it to be very effective. I'm sure this has been so much great information. I just so much resonated with you know, the realities of, I've seen of coaching and, and I just think that it's going to be really meaningful to people. So I want to thank you for all of that. You're um, and I also want to ask you a fun question. I have been asking all of my guests, what is your favorite thing right now? And it can be, you know, a book, a TV show, a product, anything that you're enjoying. Well, uh, I live in Seattle, Washington <laughs> and, uh, true to its reputation, we have long, dark, gray, uh, drizzly, <laughs> rainy winters. So it's spring right now. Uh, I love the fact that we have a few sunny days. It looks like today is going to be one of those. So I love uh, just spending a little bit of time if I can in my garden. Um, uh, it's nothing formal or fancy, but I like getting out and weeding and looking at the flowers and uh, taking walks. Um, I'm 
dog sitting right now for my son and daughter-in-law. So I am taking my dog for the walks. Just being outside um, is my favorite thing to do right now. I love that too. I live in El Paso, Texas, which is called oh. the Sun City. So we are kind of your polar opposite since we have <laughs> sun the majority of the year, lots of it. And um, <laughs> in the summer, it's kind of unbearable starting in you know, mid-June all the way through probably the end of August, possibly September. Um, but in the spring, it is absolutely gorgeous. And my kids, you know, I take my kids outside every day. We play in the backyard and it's just, we just love, we love to be out when we can. So, mm -hmm. so yes, I can completely understand that. Um, I would love people to be able to find you online and you mentioned your book. So if you want to share a little bit about that, that would be great. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, well, finding me online, I do have a website, cleverlyjanhasbrook.com. So <laughs> if you can figure out how to spell Hasbrook, <laughs> then you can find me and some of my stuff there. I'm probably most available on Twitter, and that is also at Jan Hasbrook. I have found um, a really lovely community of people um, a lot of the activity on my Twitter feed is around reading, but also about around coaching. And um, I just find it amazing in, in my teacher learner hat. I connect with a lot of people and find good articles and conferences and webinars, all kinds of things on Twitter. So at Jan Hasbrook. Um, my book, uh, I have co-authored uh, this version of the book. I mentioned Carolyn Denton earlier. She was my first co-author. We wrote a couple of books on coaching, which are no longer in print, but um, Daryl Mickle is Mickle, M-I-C, uh, H-E-L, uh, is my co-author for the book called Student Focused Coaching. Uh, it's published by Brooks, and um, it's been out for a little over a year now. And uh, it really just goes into more detail about the things that we talked about here today. What is the origin of that model? Where did it come from? What are the different roles? How to do those? The role of the administrator um, and all kinds of helpful uh, things about um, our model. So thanks for asking about that. Yes, absolutely. And I'm sure that there's some people who are going to want to grab that because they're, the way that you've described this model is just so realistic and practical. And I just feel like it's going to help a lot of coaches kind of define what their coaching work looks like. So thank you so much for that. You're welcome. Thanks for letting me share that. Yeah, we, we loved it. Thank you for being on the podcast today. I loved everything that Jan shared because it is so realistic, so practical, and it just really does. I really did find so much in what she shared that that resonated with the way that I've approached my coaching work. So I just loved it. And I hope you did too. In episode, in the next episode, um, which is going to be episode 154, we are going to do something different. And we're talking to several different coaches about how they schedule their time. Scheduling is one of those things that looks differently for different coaches, even at different times of the year. So I'm going to have different coaches share their schedules and I will share what a little bit about my, my coaching schedule looked like when I was on a campus as well um, in the next episode. So make sure you come back and listen to that one. And until then, happy coaching. Thank you for listening to Buzzing with Miss B, the coaching podcast. Want more coaching ideas? Check me out at buzzingwithmissb.com and on Instagram at buzzingwithmissb. If you love the show, share it with a coach who would love it too, or leave me a review on iTunes. It's free and it helps others find this show. Happy coaching. <laughs>